Good morning, Northwest, and welcome to second service, second of three services. How are you doing today? You're all excited to be here and be glad that you're in the house of the Lord. Say, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Good stuff. And welcome to you if you're streaming online as well right now. Uh, I know there's a lot of people even around the world that stream online. You are, we are always grateful to, for you to join us and you're welcome with us today. Um, we had a great thing that happened yesterday. We had the lovely project Hoo-ha, I don't know what they call it, um, one day, hoo-ha. It was uh, 200 screaming girls in one big room and a whole bunch of workers and 200 screaming girls in one big room. Sounds like a nightmare, but it was actually wonderful. No, it was, it was, a, it was a great thing. Talk about world changers all in one room. Today we're going to be starting with a new series that I'm excited about, and it's called The Big Ten. The Big Ten is all about the Ten Commandments. And this actually could be the first time we as a church have decided to teach about the Ten Commandments on a Sunday morning in an entire long series. So we are going to be starting with this, and I'm excited by it. The Ten Commandments are um, something that are significant to us as Christians and even Jews. They're very significant to the Jews as well. But they are something that are either reviled or revered. Either people hate them because they represent something of a past civilization or a, a set of rules, or they revere them because they think that they're from the hand of God. How many of you know this guy's face? Have you read his books before? You have? Yeah. Okay, so a lot of you have read his books. There's one particular book that he has called Mere Christianity that I certainly highly recommend reading. This guy, C.S. Lewis, was a, a very educated, learned man um, from England. And uh, he got saved later on in life. He decided to become a Christ follower later on in life. And one of the things that tipped him over to becoming a Christ follower was that he decided to investigate the whole concept of morality and how odd the whole idea of morality really is. And when he looked into it, he took it from, the, from a basic uh, perspective of when you have two people that are arguing with each other, he says, when those two people are arguing with each other, they are appealing to a higher standard, a higher moral standard, or a, a higher rule, something that is outside of them that is invisible. And when they're appealing to that higher standard, there's usually two sides of the argument that start to exist. One is, you basically say, I'm withholding or I'm upholding that standard better than you are. I am living to a much higher standard of that invisible set of rules better than you are, which is why you're wrong and I am right, na, 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 right? The other side of that argument is, yes, you might think that you're upholding that standard, but I have an exemption from that standard because I was here first, right? Is that right? No, I called shotgun. No, I was here first, but I had called shotgun first. And so what you're doing is you're appealing to the shotgun argument. You're appealing to a standard that seems to exist out in life. I remember when I first came to America and someone shouted shotgun and then jumped in the front seat and I'd never heard of it before and I didn't know what they were talking about. I'm like, where's the shotgun? I don't, where the shotgun is? Made no sense to me whatsoever, but shotgun it is. So in the next few weeks, we're actually going to be looking at all of these, uh, uh, all of these Ten Commandments. And you'll see up here, the first week, we, the, which is today, we're doing why they exist. And, if, and of course, if you, if you see this and you see that there's something you might particularly want to invite someone to because you think they need to learn that particular rule or command, then, you know, do that, right? But some of them, we've actually had to double them up in order to kind of fit them in. 
But you'll see that we've actually doubled up the do not murder and don't commit adultery because if your husband cheats on you, you'll want to kill him, so that's why they go together, right? <laughs> so we've got why they exist, other gods and idols, name and day of God, honoring parents, murder and adultery, sticky hands, pants on fire, liar, liar, and a green-eyed monster. So I'm excited by this because I'm excited to see what are the pastors, the teaching pastors here going to come up with in order to try and explain this. Because it seems to me that when we talk about do not murder, it just seems like don't murder. All right, I think we're done here this morning and I'll be the shortest service we've ever had. So what can be said about murder? It's going to be fascinating. So I have the privilege of talking about an introduction to the Ten Commandments. And I decided not to do a whole Charlton Heston thing of trying to describe this old man going up a mountain called Moses, getting 10 uh, commands chiseled on uh, the tablets, and he carries them down in, in both arms. And then we talk about how God gave these commandments to his nation, the Jews, in the Old Testament. I think we all pretty much understand that. Have you seen the Charlton, Charlton Heston movie, Ten Commandments? You have seen it? Okay. So you know exactly where we're starting off with this. What I want to do with this morning is I want to look at the reason why people don't like the Ten Commandments, why they don't subscribe to them, why they decide that the objections that they maybe have against the Ten Commandments that maybe exempts them from following them or subscribing to them. And what's interesting is a lot of these arguments seem somewhat logical to many people. But what I hope to do is try to find a cohesiveness to why we as Christians want to uphold them. Now, in each of these uh, objections that we're looking at, and there's going to be eight in all, and we're going to go through them um, as efficiently as possible, there are three things I want to ask. I want to ask, what is the argument that is being put forward? And then I want to look at, what do we have to accept as a fundamental fact about the Ten Commandments before we can really uh, 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 look at that argument? And then the last thing I want to ask is, what do we have to agree on in order to move forward with this argument that's put forward? You ready for this? Eight reasons why people don't like or subscribe to the Ten Commandments. Here we go. Number one, the first one is this. They're just rules and regulations. Have you heard that before? They're just rules and regulations. The argument goes like this. I'm an adult. I don't need them. I don't need someone else telling me what to do. I know what to do. You don't need to tell me what to do like you're an overlord telling me what to do. But what we have to accept is this, that rules are always needed in life. They're in games. You can't play a game unless you have rules. You can't really do business in life unless there's some rules. That's what contracts are all about. I remember having a discussion with someone a few years ago, a young guy, and I told him, hey, you should go work for someone and learn skills from someone else. You need to work for a boss. And he said, I don't want to work for a boss. And I said, why not? And he said, because I don't want someone else telling me what to do. I said, do you drive on the right-hand side of the road? And he said, yes. And I said, then you're doing what someone else has told you what to do. Everybody has to do it. Every day when you get up and you decide to get in your car, there's a little part of you that says, don't die, don't die, don't die, don't die. And you drive on the right-hand side of the road and you have a better chance of not dying. But I bet you, if you try and violate that unspoken rule that someone else set up years ago, you're gonna die or you're gonna be at least in a car crash. So there's something important about rules that must exist in our life. What we have to agree on is this, that no one necessarily has the right to tell you how to behave, but God does. Maybe someone can't tell you what to do, but God does. 
and what does God tell us what to do and how to behave? All right, you follow me so far? Everyone say, oh yeah? yeah. Here's number two. Say, number two. Yeah. Number two is this. They're too negative. Wah, wah. Talk about Talk about a Debbie Downer right here. It's all about thou shall not do this and thou shall not. Why can't we have the 10 rules of fun? That's what we should have. And this is the new edict I'm going to give in our church. That we're going to have 10 rules of fun. And we're taking suggestions this morning, right? So we'll do 10 rules of fun instead of the thou shalt not. They're just too negative. And isn't it bad psychology? Isn't it a crazy idea? Won't it have the opposite effect if we tell people what not to do and then at the end of the day, they really just desire that thing that you've told them not to do, right? It seems like that's what happened with Adam and Eve. Don't touch this tree now. And then that's all they wanted to do was touch that tree. It's the unattainable chocolate chip cookie that you put in front of a child and then say, I want you to eat your vegetables first. It seems like a motivation. It's not. It's like a, all I want to do is that cookie. I just want to, I want to touch that. I want to eat it. I just want to have that cookie, like the cookie monster, right? It's all he wanted to do. It was eat the cookies, eat the cookies, eat the cookies. But what we have to accept is that right and wrong must be clearly defined. Morality needs a right and a wrong. There must be a clear definition of what that is. What is it? It's not about emotion. It's not about negativity or positivity. It's about right and wrong. So therefore, what we have to agree on is who is right enough to define what is right and wrong? But God, who is, who is smart enough to tell us what is right and what is wrong? For Christians, we believe it's God. Okay, number three. Everyone say number three. three. Here we go. They're too much about absolute morality. It's all about absolute moralities. What's the argument here? The argument says this. We have to adapt to different situations. We've got to be able to change with the times. What about cohabitation? What about adultery? Surely nobody who gets divorced now puts on their, 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 their divorce papers because of adultery. Usually it's always because of un unreconcilable differences. Adultery is such an old word now. Why would we use that? And anyway, people move in together before they get married all the time, and they live together for years all the time. So what is the deal with these 10 commands? Can't we just take this one out when it seems like it's just too old-fashioned, it's too about absolute morality. We live in different times. But what we have to accept is once we start removing absolutes, we start removing morality itself. The more we start getting rid of right and wrong in our lives, we get to the point where we now have removed the last right and wrong in our lives. There is no way of defining what is good and what is bad. Morality can't exist without some level of absolutes. So what we have to agree on are what are the absolutes? And if you're in a small group, you'll see that small sign there that indicates that that's a question we're encouraging you to talk about this week. What are the absolutes? Now, maybe you can just quote the Ten Commandments and say that's what they are. But maybe what we do in our culture, we have dozens and dozens of laws that are outside the Ten Commandments in order to try and make clearer what the absolutes are in life. But what are the absolutes in life? What are the absolutes in your life, in your marriage, in your home? What are they that cannot be traded out? All right, everyone say number four. Number four is they're old-fashioned. Come on. This stuff is just so obsolete. It's from an ancient civilization that is telling us what to do. It's from the past. Why would we want to subscribe to a list of things that are so outdated and obsolete and old-fashioned? 
Let me tell you an example of where that argument might come in. Many people don't uh, subscribe to, even Christians will subscribe to most of the commands that are on that list, but the Sabbath thing is a little flexible in their life or in their perspective. I mean, we live in a culture now that is 24-7. I mean, if you've got, if you're already working six days a week and then your wife still wants to get this job done at home and you're under pressure to try and get that job done, you know what? Home Depot's open. Why don't I just run down there, get the stuff that I need from Home Depot, and then I'll work on that job, get it fixed, and then we'll have peace in our household. But actually what you did is you worked seven days in the week and didn't honor God on the one day that he's asking us to honor him. Now, come on. Is this not just a little old-fashioned? We live in a completely different culture. Surely we don't want to uh, subscribe to being so regimented and hard-lined with this. But what we're looking to do is we're looking to accept that human nature hasn't changed itself. What we found is we're expecting that if we're saying that something is old-fashioned, it implies that we've actually progressed as a culture. But the Ten Commands don't actually address culture. They address human nature. And our human nature, I know my human nature, is not that good. And that's why I have to subscribe to a rule of law that God gives me, a law that it should be in my heart and fulfilled in my heart because I'm trying to live up to the good things that he is trying to give to me. I haven't progressed. My nature hasn't gotten better when I'm older. I only discover how bad it is as I get older. So what we have to agree on is what rules do transcend person, place, and time? What are the rules? What are the ones that are maybe dictated by a civilization that is for okay for those days, but not okay for today? We even have it in the Old Testament where there were some things in the Old Testament where people had multiple wives. Now, what we're not doing is saying it was okay, and I'm not even saying that God said it was okay, but somehow it happened and they allowed it to happen, but today as Christians, we don't subscribe to it. We actually think they weren't living up to God's standards, and that even though God, it looks like he didn't quite hold them their feet to the fire and he kind of overlooked it, it doesn't mean that he was not against it. So we have these things where we have to decide what are the rules that do transcend a person, a place, or a time. Everyone say, number five, with enthusiasm. Yay, there we go, number five. Okay, they're Jewish and we're Christian. This is all Old Testament stuff. You know the big chunky part, the first part of the Bible? That part is all old stuff. We don't do half of that stuff anymore. I don't bring temple sacrifices. I don't bring doves and lambs to the the temple and, and, and live the old way. Surely this is all old stuff and we now live in the new covenant. But what we have to accept is that nine out of 10 of the commands are actually repeated verbatim in the New Testament. Even though it seems like we've done away with the Old Testament, there were many of the disciples and Jesus himself that quoted the Old Testament 10 commands and said that they are still in force in our lives, except for one. Would you like to know what it is? I'm not going to tell you. You have to find out yourself and study. Okay, what do we have to agree on? What we have to agree on is that God is not Old Testament or New Testament. He's just God. He's just the same God. And it seemed like, well, wait a second, in the Old Testament, he was angry. And in the New Testament, he's all fluffy bunnies and he's like butterflies and rainbows. God's different now. He's all about love. Listen, he's the same God. Even though he fulfilled his own judgment in the Old Testament, doesn't mean that his judgment and his standards have disappeared. So we have to understand he's still the same God. With enthusiasm, everyone say, number six, Peter. All right. 
Thank you. We live under grace, not under law. Come on. We live under grace, not under law. The argument goes like this, that laws limit people and Jesus sets us free. Just do your best. God will take care of the rest. You can't judge me because God's already justified me. I can't keep all these laws anyway. Look, come on, I can't live up to this stuff. I'm now living under the age of grace through Jesus Christ and not under this old fuddy-duddy law. I understand and accept that. But what we have to accept is that we are trying to live to these rules and regulations that God has given to us, not because we're trying to earn righteousness with them, but because it's a way of us showing gratitude to him, of living up to that standard. It's something that's very important to us that we have to know that God still has standards for us. Because we live under grace doesn't mean he's just gotten rid of all that old stuff. What we do have to agree on is this, that grace doesn't permit the opposite of the tent. So if grace covers over us, I do agree, the grace of Jesus Christ covers over everything that we have done, everything that we do do, did I say do-do? Yeah, everything we do do and everything that we will do. Yet, grace never said, hey, by the way, it's okay to kill someone. If someone cuts you off in traffic, just get out, kill them, grace will cover you perfectly, you'll be fine. Grace doesn't cover this, the opposite of all the things that God told us not to do. All right, number seven, very quietly. Thank you. I can feel you. You're really getting into this. Number seven, love is all that's needed. Come on. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love. Come on. Isn't that true? Come on. Love is all you need. I was by a place the other day where someone actually got shot and there was a guy, it was a homeless guy riding along on a bike and he stopped beside me and he said, what happened over there? And I said, someone got shot and he's like, man, all you need is love, brother. And he rode off and that song got stuck in my head. I'm like, all you need is love. All you need is a shower, brother. Come back. We got showers here. All you need is love. Surely we don't need this negative stuff telling us what not to do and all this stuff. The New Testament says that love has fulfilled the law. Jesus is love. For God so loved the world that he gave us his son, that he has now fulfilled this law. But here's the problem I have with it. We have to accept the fact that as so many things are being done that are wrong and they're being done in the name of love. Let me give you an example. One of the, the, the most heinous things that I think is done in, in this way is in the name of love, euthanasia exists or even abortion exists. And now what we've done is we've decided to call it, instead of calling it euthanasia, we're now calling it mercy killing, where we're killing people to give them mercy, to say, we love you so much, we're willing to kill you. The problem I have with it is, I don't know who is justified enough, who is good enough, who has the right to be able to take someone else's life. Now you could say they have the right to take their own life, that's a discussion we could have for another day. But what I do know is, I don't think that any of us have the right to take someone else's life in that method, that mode, or that manner, which will be an interesting discussion when we do the, the, the Sunday when we're talking about do not murder. Is it okay to have capital, uh, to, to have capital uh, punishment? Is it okay to do mercy killing? So these are things that we're looking to get into, which is gonna be fascinating. What we do have to agree on is this, that love must have boundaries. There has to be this far and no further. Boundaries must exist. 
Okay, here's the last one. Who's excited for the last one? Come on, everyone say, oh yeah, number eight. Give us number eight. What is it? It's the one that you're going to be troubled with the most. So maybe we should just skip it, right? I'll tell you what it is. Number eight is I'm good enough if I keep most of them. This is the one that I think Christians stumble over the most. How is that so? The argument goes like this. If I respect others, then I'm good with God. If I respect others, then I'm already good with God. Now think about this. If that's true, it's saying that if I respect the second half of the rules or the, 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 the commands that do, don't kill someone, don't steal from them, don't covet their stuff, don't lie to them, if, if look after your parents, and all, that's all good stuff. If I do the good stuff, then I'm good with God. God's got nothing against me. The problem with that is this, that God put the respect of himself first in the Ten Commandments, not last, not extra, not later, not an afterthought. But the first things he put was himself first. Four of them, he talks about himself first. There must be a reason for that. I'll tell you why. The reason is because the Big Ten only work if God is in them. Now, you might disagree with me on this one, which is fine. But I don't have a problem with the Ten Commandments being removed from our courts of law or from our public buildings. Why? Because God has already been removed from these places. We can't pray in some of these places. We can't appeal to God. We can't do things where we're putting God first in these public places. So if we remove God from these, these things, then how can I demand that his ways should still exist when we don't want him to still be involved? His ways is himself. Himself is his ways. We have the right to follow God, but if we don't want to put him in our lives, or we don't, if someone else doesn't want to keep them in their life, then I have no right to tell them, you have to keep the Ten Commandments in their life. They don't believe in God. They don't subscribe to God. They don't want to follow God. Then I can never expect them to want to uphold his laws. That's not the way it works. So what I want to do right now is I want to talk about this level that I brought up on stage. I want to explain how this level for me is like the Ten Commandments. And when I was a child, my, my dad, uh, my da I remember doing a job with my dad once and we were working on something, maybe a treehouse or something, and he had me put the level on a piece of wood and then he told me, he said, is it true? And I said, what's true? And he said, is the level true? And I said, I don't understand. Now, the word true is an old term that is used by engineers and maybe builders, etc. Who's a builder in here? Jimmy, you're a builder. Have you heard of the word true? Yeah, okay, so the word true is like an old term that is used commonly in building, and it means this, it means trusted, level, exact, with integrity, or of the right bearing. My father was a marine engineer, so of course he's using these old terms to, to ask me whether something was true. He was asking me, was it level? And the more I looked at this, I realized that there are things that are the Ten Commandments that are basically not truths, but are true. They are true tellers in our life. That the Ten Commandments exist in our lives to be like true tellers for us. And I've got a few true tellers that I've just put up on the screen there. And the first one is this, that the, that the level helps me to indicate what's right and wrong. It indicates to me what's right and what's wrong. Now, if you look in the middle, we've got this tiny little bubble right there. And the bubble goes back and forward as I go here. It's a little vial of fluid. And as if I go up this way, then the bubble goes up to the top because air always rises to the surface in fluid. 
If I go down this way, then the bubble swings up to that side, and many of you have ever used a level before, you know exactly how that works. But there are two little hair uh, markings that are on the vial of fluid, and all I have to do is get the bubble perfectly in the middle, and when the bubble is perfectly in the middle, then it's perfectly level. It is true, as they say. Now, the amazing thing is with this is that it doesn't actually do anything to enforce that law. It doesn't enforce level. It doesn't enforce any of good things in my life. All it does is it tells me and it indicates whether I am right or I'm wrong. Am I close or am I far? The second thing that it does is that it measures how close I am to being safe and how far I am away from being safe. If the bubble is too far off, I know that's way off. If it's near the middle and it's mostly on, I have to make a decision. Am I good with it being mostly on or do I want it to be perfectly true? Do I want to be perfectly level? Which then takes us to the third thing, which is that it points to the power that is acting on my life. This is pointing to gravity. Gravity is telling me which way, uh, uh, which way it's going to affect me. Gravity is very powerful. The Ten Commandments is pointing to the, 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 the judgments of God, the power of God, the glory of God that would actually crush us if we don't pay attention to it. So if I take this and I look at my, and I, and I try and balance myself in my own life, on my two feet, gravity is actually acting upon me, but it's not crushing me, it's not affecting me. But as soon as I take away one leg, I am now putting all the pressure of gravity on one leg. And my muscles are now twitching, trying to keep myself level, trying to keep myself balanced here. And now I'm working against gravity, yet gravity hasn't changed, I'm working against it. A level helps us to be able, helps to point to that power that will act upon me. The fourth thing that this, this level does is that it predicts the future for me. It tells me that whatever I'm about to build, whether it's actually going to be strong enough to stand for a long time or will it fall over. You see, when you take a level, I know Jim Sellers built this stage, so let's see if it's level. Oh, it's perfect, Jim. It's awesome. Okay, if he had built this wrong, we'd all slide off this way, right? So if, we had, if I take this level and I build it and I raise it up just a millimeter, I put a tiny mill, I put a, a few millimeters, I put my little pinky right there, it's just a tiny bit off on the level right now. But as soon as I build up on top of it and the building gets bigger and bigger, that one tiny few millimeters is now going to be six foot off at the top of the building. You see, what you may get away with in small things in your life today will magnify a year, 10 years, 20 years later. What you get away with and what you put up with today in your life will magnify in your children in years later as well. The building becomes more dangerous the higher it gets. The more glory, the more responsibility, the more difficulty you put on your shoulders, the more your weaknesses and the things that you have overlooked in your life now start to crush under you because the level has not dictated your foundation. A foundation is very important to everything that we do in our life. And then, of course, if we can predict the future, then, of course, it must be able to help us avoid suffering. Because if I can avoid suffering by building something that will last for a long time, it won't bring suffering to me by crushing me or crushing my family. I mean, when I was a child, uh, uh, when I was a teenager, actually, a young teenager, and I was at school, and uh, I was at a pretty rough school for quite a while. And I remember when the other kids were getting into, uh, in, you know, starting to explore their sexuality and they started sleeping around. And I remember this young lad in uh, my school decided to pick on me and he says, hey, Brunton, are you a virgin? 
And all you can hear is the word virgin just echoing around the school. And Brunton is a virgin, just spray painted on the wall. That's the visions I had. And I'm thinking, how is it that I'm feeling shame for something that I know is right to actually stay and keep yourself pure before your marriage? How is it that I'm being condemned for this? And the word Brunton is a virgin is being echoed around the school. And of course, I get back home and my brother could see I'd had a bad day. And he's like, so what happened today? And I told him what happened. And then he said to me, when you go back tomorrow, and if they do it again, tell them this. I can be like you any day, but you'll never be like me ever again. And what he was doing was he wasn't trying to tell me how to condemn them or how to put them down. But he was trying to help me to stay the course and to hold on to that which was true in my life things that were important to us, things that are gifts that God has given to us to honor our parents, to honor our sexuality, to honor our reputation by not being a liar or a thief. And so it's important that we know how to measure whether we're on the right track or we're not on the right track. And of course, the last thing that this, this, measure, this level does for me is that it helps me to guide the next levels, to guide the next standards in my life, to guide the next generation. You see, what you put up with today in your life, the next generation will start to embrace. It will be no big deal for them. Even the good things that you put up with or you, you fight for in your life today will start to be easier for the generations that come after you. I had a good conversation with someone uh, last week about, uh, about giving, and they said that they really struggle to try and give. They find it difficult to, to have the right attitude and have the joy to be able to give. And I asked her, I said, I just have one question for you. Did your parents, were they big givers? Did they teach you to give? And she said, no. I said, then that's why you're wrestling with this. Because whatever your parents didn't teach you to do, you've got to fight and wrestle to try and take hold of it. I said, but here's the good news. The fight that you fight for in your life today will be something that your children will be think of as second nature. It'll be no big deal for them to be, to be generous givers, to be the type of people who know how to give to the Lord and give to the other people. They're not tight-fisted. Why? Because they saw your example, even if your example came on the heels of a fight every day. Listen, we have the right to fight for our children. We have an obligation to fight for our children. And everything that you let go in your life is going to be magnified in your children. Everything you fight for and embrace in your life will be magnified in your children to a better degree than yourself. How exciting is that? So I love the Ten Commandments. I don't know about you, but I love that they're there. Sometimes they tell me I'm doing something wrong. And I have to correct myself. But guess what? The Strombeck seniors taught me this one day, and they said, correction is not rejection. It's just the redirection to get to the right place. It's just like an airplane. When an airplane has been flown, it has to be corrected just slightly. Because if it's not corrected just slightly, it will end up in the place that you never imagined to be in. It will end up in the place that you don't want to be in. Correction is not rejection. It's just a redirection for your life. 